Wilkinson, thank you so much for coming on A Path to Follow podcast. It's this podcast that I've been doing at Gilman School this year with the help of Cesare. And we had um, Professor John Zimmerman, one of my professors at Penn, on a couple weeks ago. And I'm really excited to talk to you today because you're a Philadelphia, you know, you live in Philadelphia and you spend a lot of time there. And I'm from that area, as we as we talked about. Um, and also your interest in cartooning and your career in cartooning is something that I've uh, been interested in myself. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today. And I was looking at some of your cartoons before I came on today. And I've, I've seen a lot of them before and I just never connected. I never knew. I didn't know who you are before uh, in person. But now I'm really excited to meet you. And, and thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. And uh, thank you for having me. So, Signe, when did you begin cartooning? How did you get into it? Um, well, I'm pretty much an accidental cartoonist. I graduated uh, from college with the all-important BA in English. So did I. <laughs> and no job? Did you have no job? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, uh, at any rate, I, got, I put together a number of part-time jobs and one of them was stringing at a country newspaper outside uh, west of Philadelphia and um, by that it, I meant you know they paid me ten dollars a story to go and cover the Pocopson Township supervisors um, and get the story in that night um, and I started I've always drawn and I just started drawing the people I was covering and the paper being, uh, you know, I, journalism was a little more casual then. They just started running some of the drawings in a Friday roundup where the reporters would put tidbits in that never made it into stories, funny stories, observations, things they'd seen around town. And I did these little drawings and the drawings just kept getting bit, bigger. And then I started drawing on political issues in, in, in the area. Um, and one thing led to another. <laughs> I just, I, I really, I really found that um, cartooning combined my interest in art, my interest in politics and um, my lack of interest in spelling. So it was a perfect form for me. And I, I eventually moved into the city and started going to every art school in Philadelphia, uh, ending up at the Academy of Fine Arts and uh, working at the Academy of Natural Sciences, doing some of their graphics and layout work. And I got to do cartoons of like frogs with a, with a cigarette for a no smoking sign <laughs> but it was a cartoon so I you know I just it just started drawing everywhere I could and inflicting my drawings on people and eventually got a um, enough of a portfolio together to uh, get some freelance work at the Daily News Philadelphia Daily News and um, Inquirer um, again, hap by happenstance, one of the, one of the people who was painting a tuba with me in art at the Academy of Fine Arts one day turned out to be a reporter at the Daily News. 
um, she was sort of doing it from art therapy, uh, having, you know, covered all these horrible things in the city. And she said, oh, I know Tony Auth, who was the great cartoonist for the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. And we went to one of his openings and I met him and then I was able to do some freelance work both for the Inquirer and Daily News, build up a portfolio and got a eventually, you know, overnight 10 years after graduating from college, got a um, job at the San Jose Mercury News. And my husband and I moved out there for several years and then back to the, to the Daily News. And along this journey of cartooning, what advice did you get or how did you really develop your style? Because you have such a distinct style and such a like noticeable Signe Wilkinson cartoon. How did that progress like from your original doodles to what you're what you're doing now? Is that just the just the result of doing so many cartoons that you kind of developed it? it? That's exactly right. Just doing them over and over again. I look back at my early work and cringe it was so primitive the drawing but uh a lot of the ideas were there it just i i have really become a, a lot more as you say i my style has developed over the years and it's uh, i don't think if you saw the early ones and the current ones you would even know they were the same person uh, funny enough just yesterday i I have been told because I have never been on the the uh, site Reddit, but somebody posted an old, I mean, a 30 year old cartoon just in black and white of mine. And it blew up. I, I mean, thousands of people looked at it. I got 3000 comments. Apparently, I don't know. <laughs> I still haven't been on Reddit, but, uh, it, you know, I look at the cartoon, I, I want to say, oh, I, could we just take it down for about three hours while I redraw that? <laughs> but um, the, the, the concept was good, so I guess people still respond to it. Now, how do, you, how do you usually come up with the concepts or the ideas for your cartoons? Do you kind of just follow the news? That's kind of what I do, because I told you before that I've done some cartoonings yeah. and some cartoons in, in my past too. And I continue to try to, to do that in my free time, but I usually, you know, go on Twitter or look at the news and just kind of figure out something that's of interest to me that I can recreate on paper. But what is your process when you're, you know, you wake up in the morning as a cartoonist, what does that, what does it look like for you to develop the content? Well, I, I don't know how, uh, when you look through those things, when you're sort of wanting to do a cartoon, what are you looking for, Jake? Well, I think for myself, I look for something that's of interest to me and something that I have a personal opinion on that I want to say something about that is okay. better said, I think, in images and with a quote bubble than if I were to write a, you know, a two, three page editorial about it. And, and you can get the point of what I'm trying to say in, in the drawing. Um, but it has to be something that I personally care about and something that is uh, of interest to me. Well, I think, th I think that's what most cartoonists do. How many do you draw a week? 
So that's that's where I I need to up my numbers a little bit. In the summertime when I have more free time when I'm not teaching. So we we actually just finished school yesterday, last day of classes. I have more time to really look through the news and figure right. out what I think on certain subjects and drawing for me takes a while. I don't know how how long is your how long does a typical cartoon take you to complete? Well, from idea to completion it can takes it takes really quite a few hours and especially having now you know in the old days when it was only black and white i finished the drawing and handed it to somebody and they 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 didn't have personal scanners they took it down made a v-lox of uh print of it and sized it to the paper somebody else put it on the the print at the the page, the whole page was photographed. It was then that was sent to the printing. And now, of course, I do everything. I scan the black and white drawing, I color it on the computer, I size it, and I send it right into the computer. I mean, into the, the when I was working, I retired from the newspaper a few months ago. But it, there was like a, a series of steps you went through. But it basically went right into the the printing section and the online section um, like magic did. There was nothing between me and the printing press. There used to be like 15 people between us. Hmm. So it uh, without having now um, that I'm not working at the paper, I just complete the cartoon and send it to my syndicate the washington post writers group and they send it out to papers around the country and then those papers put it into their own systems does it any... yeah go ahead well any rate it it depends on what the it's a lot uh easier now um you know i just really do them and send them to the syndicate so i can be done you know in a you know by one in the afternoon or two in the afternoon or longer if something's gone wrong. And what? Let me just see if I can find something to show you. Um, uh, the way I get started is reading the paper in the morning, and I read. Uh, I I get three papers delivered to my house, and. Um, and then read it. I have two more: the Post and the Times online. And but what I like about a newspaper is it slows me down. The reading of it, you read more of an article, and you read it more carefully. And what I find is that good writing, good, vivid writing, tends to use good vivid images or they spur good images mm -hmm. for me so I, I the second reason i like a newspaper is that they have pages with white space with great big ads so i can just start right away drawing my idea so i don't forget it this is a cartoon I haven't done, and it's about Philadelphia, so I won't bother describing it. But I, I, I would say four out of five of my cartoons start this way. And so by the time I've finished reading the papers, and I'm a really slow reader, um, 
I have an idea and a sketch. And then from there, I go to the drawing board right behind me and start drawing. And what is the drawing board? What, what is that? Oh, that's where you, that's where you just sit down and pencil or pen and paper and just begin. Yeah. Yep. It's got a light box underneath it. So I can put, I, I wouldn't put this, but just say this was my sketch. I can put it on. And this was my final sketch. Um, I can put it on the light table, put a piece of paper over it, the, and then turn on the light and use this as my um, under sketch hmm. without having to sketch on the paper. Do you ever have to look at some, do you have to have to pull up on your computer anything to look at so that you can draw or is it all from memory? Is it all from your mind that you're producing these images? No, I, uh, I, I, in the, in the old days, uh, granny here is going to tell you <laughs> that, that the um, newspapers had what they called morgues, which were photo files of everything. So they would, if you needed to draw city hall, they would have city hall, west side city hall, east side, the tower on city hall, William Penn on the top of the tower in Philadelphia, um, Congress, um, the north side of Congress, the south the portico, inside Congress, the you know the the steps of Congress, you could you could get what almost anything you wanted in a black and white photo, and use that as rec reference. But you'd have to go downstairs and you know ask for it. And before I worked for the papers, I would go to the Free Library of Philadelphia. And they had an entire room like that. So I remember uh, having to draw something with a locomotive. Well, I couldn't draw a locomotive from my brain. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what one looks like. And if you don't draw, if you don't have a reference, the drawing looks weak. It, it, it just, it screams. You didn't know what a locomotive looks like. Why mm -hmm. did you bother? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and if you look at some of the, the really terrific cartoonists, um, Jeff McNally, for example, example, who was just brilliant in the 60s or the 70s and 80s and died unfortunately quite young, um, did beautiful drawings of cars and airplanes, everything you knew he'd looked at it because all the little details where the where the wheels went you know where the cab went on top of the wheels it just it just grounds it even though you're doing a caricature of a locomotive it's not a it's not a draftsman spec to actually build a locomotive it, mm -hmm. it's a drawing that gives you the emotional sense of what a, a locomotive a locomotive is and so when you're doing that now, when you're reprodu reproducing the images, are you pulling those up on your computer and looking at them or, okay. Yeah. And it's so easy, as you know, you know, put in locomotive, you get <laughs> hundreds of looks mm -hmm. and then you can find the one that's best for you. There's really no excuse for not looking things up. And I mean, you can look up everything. Not and certainly, if you're drawing a caricature, it really helps to have a number of photos from different angles, 
of the person you want to draw. So what, um, what materials do you use? Like how did your use of the materials for your cartoons progress, right? From you probably started with a pen or a pencil, but now what types of utensils do you use to produce your cartoons? Well, for a long time, I was drawing with a rapidograph, which is and not a flexible point. So it gave a very um, even line, although you have different width points so that you could vary if you needed to. Um, and I liked that for what my style was, because I wanted it a fairly graphic style, not you know, I wasn't Ralph Steadman. Um, but then I started, uh, I got recently, um, essentially it's a fountain pen that you has a cartridge. It's a pilot pen. It's really expensive. Um, it's up like $150 or something. So I don't, you know, I treat it with care. And actually, I lost one when I went to get a vaccine. My second vaccine shot, I lost this pen, but I figured it was worth it for the vaccine. <laughs> so you, you bring those around with you when you when you go places, you do little doodles as you're not anymore. I don't do No, I, I, I use um, I, 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 you know, I first of all, I love this. I I use these uh, felt tip pens and they come in different sizes. And I like this color for me, this uh, sort of orangey color is just like in my palette. And there's several, several other dark browns that I like um, for sketching, uh, but I don't use them on the final drawing because you don't want, I mean, you don't really want color in your sketch because it's going to be a black and white line that anchors the, the drawing. And then, how, Although, and then how do you end up coloring your, your pieces for Photoshop? You do it all in Photoshop. Yeah. Hmm. So you get your ideas for your cartoons from your newspapers. Have you ever used Twitter at all? That's something that I like to go to because as you said, you need something that evokes those vivid images in your mind as you're mm -hmm. reading. And I, I really like Twitter for that because you have the character length. It's only a couple words to produce an image in your mind as kind of the scroller. I get a lot of, I get a lot of uh, ideas for cartoons on Twitter, but mm -hmm. for you, it's mostly from sitting down reading the newspaper every morning. Well, I, I find Twitter both good and bad because people are so funny on Twitter and they will give a funny line. But I feel like if I turn that into a cartoon, I've stolen somebody else's line. Mm -hmm. And they're usually much better than what I come up with. But you know, so it's tempting. But um, I, I have to have something that's not exactly a joke already that somebody has um, somebody has come up with. Uh, so it's, I find, I find that a gray area in, in where, where to get an idea. Cause as I said, I'd love, I'd love to 
steal some of those really good ideas you mm-hmm. see in the morning. People get up mad. <laughs> or kind of memes have a lot of ideas in them that mm-hmm. you could easily play off of, but your ideas are all, all original and they they just kind of come up in your mind as you're as you're reading the newspapers. Yeah, and as I said, good vivid writing. What is... what newspapers do you read? Uh, well, I uh, I have both the Inquirer and the Daily News delivered, and uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, and then I used to get the Times too, but it just went over a thousand dollars for a year's subscription, and so I only get that online now. And I get the Washington Post, which I like because for a number of reasons, but um, my friend Ann Telness is the cartoonist uh, there uh, and she's such a genius. I love seeing her work, uh, which is in the online version only. And um, so I like to keep up with her and other, they, they do occasionally use other cartoonists. Oh, and they have a new uh, new guy, Michael Deatter, is contributing to their uh, their paper. So, how did you, Signe, find material for your cartoons originally? How did you find out what you were most interested in politically? Was it kind of just through reading the the news and following world events that you started to formulate your own political opinions, or how did that process? Uh, of your content really begin? Uh, Well, there are two different ways. Um, First of all, uh, you know, I grew up um, in the very late 60s and and 70s when there was all the anti-war things. Um, You know, I was in high school when Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were shot. I was you know, I remember when JFK was shot, when uh, our history professor came in. I mean, I, I remember them running down the halls and coming in and whispering to the teacher and then it coming over the loudspeaker and everybody just sat horrified. And it wasn't until many years later, I saw the fantastic Bill Malden cartoon about it. And he heard the news, it was a, came in the morning and he, I've heard him talk about it. He's, he said he just went out desolate, just desolate. And he was in Washington and was walking around and he came to the Washington Monument and was, or the, I'm sorry, um, the Lincoln Memorial. And looking at that beautiful statue of Lincoln and the chair um, and the cartoon he did was of that statue with Lincoln's head in his hands, you know, just covered and weeping. Well, I mean, it wasn't, he didn't have tears. He didn't need tears. That would have been over the top. He just had Lincoln, you know, with his head in his hands, his face in his hands. Um, And so there, that's how somebody gets an idea for a cartoon. What do you think makes a cartoon good? What separates a good cartoon from a great cartoon, do you think? Well, that Molden cartoon is one of the greatest cartoons ever drawn mm-hmm. for in America. Uh, and it's, uh, 
because I mean, for so many reasons, resonating from Lincoln being having been assassinated to the sorrow that and shock that everybody felt. Uh, it's that was a, that that was a great cartoon. I think the best cartoons have the fewest words. That that cartoon had no words. Um, the the drawing carried the whole thing. Um, and there are others, other many others like that um, by a number, many different cartoonists. A lot of it, it seems like, has to be timing because if a cartoon mm -hmm. is run too early or too late, then it loses its emotional effect. And, right. and the question that I was going to ask you is, like, how do you know the correct timing for a cartoon? How do you know what to run when? And are you ever, are you ever nervous or concerned about the timing of your cartoons? Yeah, I think timing, that's a very good point. And uh, timing is, is really important. Uh, the sooner the better, really, because you want to hit people when they care about the story too, and they're concerned about it. Um, and on something like the link at the, um, the JFK one, that, that cartoon was in the next day's paper. So you can imagine people shocked all over and opening their paper and it gave them an emotional, you know, a way of, of, of visualizing their own grief. Um, but timing is really important. Uh, the one time I didn't run a cartoon that I had drawn was on Black Lives. It was a about race and about police and black kids, um, and it was a two-part cartoon where the mom is saying goodbye to the kid, and I can't. Well. Oh, the, the kid is putting on a Ku Klux, there's a black child or a young man putting on a, a Ku Klux Klan hood. And she said, he's, the mom's saying, well, what are you doing? And the second panel is he's walking down the street. You know, I want to, you know, essentially, I don't want to be hassled by the cops. Um, and so I drew it and I, it was a good drawing and I liked it. Um, but in the afternoon, the news came that, um, an African-American cop who had been shot his, uh, and killed the, the policeman, his uh, widow was, um, raising the issue. I think, I think it was with the district attorney. I'm not sure, sure exactly it was coming to court and she was at court and she was just, you know, distraught and beyond belief. Uh, obviously it was her husband who had died. And I just, that would have, that cartoon would have fallen. It wouldn't have just fallen flat. I mean, it would have insulted people on all sorts of different ways because 
this policeman had lost his life and he was an African-American and to say that, oh, he would have been a, a Ku Klux Klanner was just, that wouldn't have gone. So we didn't run it. How quickly, did, how quickly do you have to make decisions like that as to run a cartoon or, or not? Do you constantly have to follow the news on it? really an hourly basis, right? To decide what, you know, what is going on in the world and whether we should go through this or not, if it's going to offend too many people or if it's going to be the wrong note to strike at the moment. Well, most of the time, things like that don't happen. You know, you have a longer runway, but um, fortunately we were able to catch it in time and substitute another cartoon, not my cartoon, you know, just a, a syndicated cartoon. And I wasn't unhappy about that. And I sent the cartoon out on my syndicate and it appeared in other newspapers. And I got a, I got complaints from uh, a police group up in Northern Jersey saying, you know, we're not all racists. That's really an insult, et cetera. Um, but, um, and do, you, do you get complaints often for for things that you draw? Because that's really the job of the cartoonist is to is to strike a nerve, almost like a comedians do in some ways, right? Do you get do you get complaints about the work that you do, and how do you how do you take complaints from other people? Because in to a large degree, it's what you do; it's your job to press on the truth, and. And I'm sure people can file complaints or reach out to you on every cartoon that you do. So how, as a cartoonist, do you handle issues like, not the one that we discussed, but, but everything, really? Well, not every cartoon is, gets complaints. Um, when, we, when we used to have on, uh, comments online on the newspaper, um, I could see, and people... And, and mostly it was liberal conservative, you know, you've got your head in the sand or somewhere else dark and, you know, um, you know, typical libtard, uh, most asinine thing I've ever seen. And that's just public discourse now. I'm, I mean, they disagree with the cartoon. It's not their political point of view. It's their right to, to, to complain about me the same way I have the right to draw it in the first place. So mm -hmm. I, I, I was not bothered by those kinds of things at all. But occasionally it would get um, much more heated. Um, I did one a long time ago um, on a... a uh, a candidate running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, um, who starting a, started a whispering campaign about his opponent, who was a woman, and and really doing well. Look like she might actually win. And he started the, the, his I don't know if it was him, but his campaign um, said that she was anti-Semitic because somebody in her church of a thousand people uh, they had had a uh they had had a, a speaker from palestine or a palestinian speaker in a series of, of evening talks about 
uh, the Middle East and what was going on. Well, they had people from various sides, but they did have a, a Palestinian. And they said, because of that, and it was her church, she must be anti-Semitic. And I did a little time there. We got tons of letters about the story. Um, and I did a, just a little drawing of, uh, to go with the letters that were about various parts that, you know, different opinions on that. And it was just a little drawing of a man. Well, the, the candidate was uh, Lynn Yackel. The woman running against him was on uh, like a circus, like a little circus stool with diamonds on it. And she was like a little doggy on the stool. And a guy was, instead of holding a, a, a hoop for her to jump through, it was the Star of David that she had to jump through. Uh, that was it. There was no, there were no words. It was just a little drawing. Well, um, I was called feminism's own Goebbels. <laughs> I was called um, every kind of, uh, you know, I was a Nazi and of various kinds, you know, it was way out of bounds. You can't ever use the Star of David in a cartoon. That's just off the charts. It's uh, anti-Semitic just by being in the cartoon. I, I, I really, the, the, the senator's son came in to complain. It, it was a big deal. Um, and so two or three days later, I, you know, we ran all those comments. We didn't, have, this was before the internet. So you ran the, the letters that came in. And so they all, you know, they, there were many letters calling me all sorts of names and we ran them. So that's how we, we used to deal with it. But interestingly, I went back and looked and on that same page of letters, maybe three months earlier, I had done a cartoon about um, Arabs shooting Israelis. And the drawing was a, 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 an Arab looking guy. I mean, you have to use some cues so people know what, what you're saying. He's pointing a rifle and the um, viewfinder at the end of the, of the rifle is the Star of David. So it was clear he was aiming for Jews. Well, that had run, as I said, three months earlier, we got zero complaints. And it's because it was used in a way that Jews appreciated. You know, it was, it was against shooting Jewish people. Mm -hmm. um, so that it wasn't a problem. And that uh, to me is an illustration of why people can't own images and can't tell you, you cannot use them because um, no one owns them. And if you can't use them at all, you can't use them for good either or for uh, other images and and that goes for the Muhammad the whole Muhammad thing you can't draw Muhammad well I drew one where Muhammad was happy and laughing with a bunch of other religious icons nobody complained about that it went around the world many times um, and you know if you if you you know it's 
just depends on yeah the context yeah has there ever been well that brings up the conversation about your book on free speech that you did recently but i want to talk about that in a minute but but i have a question about have you ever regretted a cartoon that you have run or have created and maybe have learned more about the issue or some other news had come out after that you that made you want to pull the cartoon or regret having done it in the first place? Uh, yeah, undoubtedly. <laughs> I've done, I, I know I have, uh, but um, not that many actually, and, and none that really stand out in my memory. Um, if anybody who reads my cartoons is listening to this, I'm sure you will say, well, how about this one? <laughs> and you may well be right. Um, but most of them I, I, I stand by. How many do you produce every week? How, how many do you draw like on a daily or weekly basis? I used to draw six a week and then I went down to five a week and then I went down to four a week and, uh, I retired at the end of last year and now I'm drawing three, not this month, this month I've taken off, but, um, I, I draw three a week for my syndicate, the Washington Post writers group. And then I post them online now. That's my outlet. Um, and, and how did this idea to work with John Zimmerman on the book about free speech and the history of free speech in the United States, how did that originate and how did you get in touch with him? He, he's written a number of uh, op-eds for our newspapers, so I knew his writing. And I just emailed him one day and said, could we have coffee to talk about this? He'd written one about free speech. And I, I really believe in it strong, you know, strongly that you can't have these speech codes and, you know, people have to be able to read what other people actually think. Um, without having it trimmed up to be acceptable. At any rate, we had coffee and he, I said, how about let's doing a book together? And then he had something else going on. So it was about a year later, it was about this time last year that we really started, well, it was a little earlier in the spring, but we got started on it. And then it was published just last month. And, and so it was your idea to write the book. You sought him out for his, for him and he. For him to do all the work. <laughs> and then I would do a few cartoons to go with. I love it. Yeah. If you can get that gig, go ahead and try to find one. <laughs> Um, how, how many cartoons are in there? I actually, I, I've not read the book yet. I'm trying to get my hands on it, but how oh, many I cartoons? Get, uh, about 13 or 14 altogether. They're little. I mean, let me show you a book. Um, <laughs> and then I have, you know, it's like this, uh, a cartoon, cartoons every once in a while. Um, and some of them, here's uh, the nothing to offend anyone news. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can see it. Um, so that's, you know, it's just trying to make the 
the the text a little more lively. I mean, Jonathan's a fantastic writer. He writes vividly, but just just for the reader to have some interruption and looking at some a different way of conceiving the point he's writing about, I think is kind of a fun idea. Yeah, I did something with my grandfather, actually. My grandfather, when he retired, had this hobby. He was such a information guy, and he would just sit on Google for hours. And Your grandfather? My grandfather, yeah. He, um, he's a really smart guy, and he, he always thought that the encyclopedia was like the, the key to all secrets. So when the computer started finally taking off and the Internet was taking off, he – would say, I'll race you to look something up in my encyclopedias while you're on Google. And we were like, whiz, there's no way. We'll, we'll look it up very easily, you know, 10 times faster than you can in your encyclopedias. So we finally sold him on Google. And he would sit at his computer, sit on Google for hours just looking things up and writing his own, what he called wisdom memos, his own kind of life lessons. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book on called wisdom memos is life lessons. So I, I went through and I did the same thing you did, uh, nowhere near the talent that you have for cartooning, but I, but I did cartoons yeah. just like you did for, for Zimmerman's book. That's great. I'd love to see that. And I bet your grandfather loved it. Yeah. He, uh, it was, it was a fun little side project, but yeah, um, of course. Well, um, when you're talking about um, vicious cartoons, can I show you that cartoon we looked at before we went on? Yeah, let's do, let's show but, a couple cartoons. That would be awesome. Um, this is not my cartoon. Uh, okay, so this is the first, uh, one of the first of the modern uh, attack political cartoons. And uh, if you think cartoonists are vicious now, this is from uh, the early 1500s in Germany. And the person who commissioned it was none other than that attack cartoonist, Martin Luther. Hmm. At the time, he was, um, he was writing and fulminating against the church in Rome, uh, saying that uh, the Vatican, which they were building and um, with all the elaborate frescoes and buildings, etc., was um, an abomination to Christianity. And plus, all the German citizens were being taxed. So it, it was a, a, many different things um, that he complained about the, that the, the formal church it had corrupted Christianity and Catholicism as he knew it. I mean, he was a monk, a Catholic monk. At any rate, this is one of the cartoons that he, he commissioned. And on the left, you see two German peasants sticking out their tongues and lowering their, <laughs> pointing their bare backsides and farting in the face of the Pope. That cartoon would not run in a <laughs> family newspaper in uh, 2021, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, yet, he's still Martin Luther. Um, at any rate, um, he, he did a number of, of 
of cartoons. And this isn't even the most vicious that he did. The Catholic Church did uh, figured it out and did some of their own against uh, Luther as well. But um, it's just to say that um, uh, people have been using imagery for all uh, cartoon imagery to make all sorts of points, not just on Democrats and Republicans, but on religion, on um, all, all, all sorts of things. Um, fast forward from Martin Luther, this is Thomas Nast, who was himself a German immigrant uh, in the mid-1800s in New York City. Uh, he was America's most famous cartoonist at the time and is still revered as uh, one of the, probably the, the greatest um, ever. And uh, this is a, uh, he railed against the, the, the millionaires then, they were only millionaires, uh, the businessmen, the, uh, the, the, the big industrialists, the money men of New York City. Um, and this is an iconic image that is still used to represent uh, fat, rich people which is, shows you the problem that modern cartoonists have, because look at this great outfit and this overweight guy and the, the, the diamond on his shirt or the jewel on his shirt, where now we get Zuckerman, Zuckerberg um, with gap t-shirts and skinny guy. I mean, you can't tell him from any kid at the mall. <laughs> it is just a disgrace what our millionaires dress like. Uh, it's very hard to dis distinguish them from the crowd. But at, at any rate, so this was uh, Thomas Nast, but he um, didn't just do that. He um, he was known, he was a, uh, he was very much uh, uh, against slavery. Okay, so this is um, an engraving he did um, from South Third Street in um, Philadelphia, PA, by the way. At any rate, he did this engraving two weeks after the Emancipation Proclamation in um, uh, 1865, I think. At, at any rate, it, on the left, you can see, and it's in support of the Emancipation Proclamation. So this is a whole way, a different way of doing editorial art, because on the left, you can see the horrors of slavery um, uh, uh, being sold and then being whipped and beaten. And on the right, you can see the promise of emancipation with um, people uh, sending their children to school, uh, the public school like uh, a white person would. And in the center, this beautiful depiction of uh, black family life. Abraham Lincoln there at the bottom called Thomas Nast his best recruiting sergeant. Um, mm. And that was kind of a, I mean, how great is that you ask, like, were you ever embarrassed about a cartoon? <laughs> well, this is a cartoon that 
uh, like affected history and convinced people or influenced people to, to the union cause and the cause of uh, the anti-slavery cause. Um, but now, um, uh, <clears throat> NAST has been um, uh, decommissioned because late in his career, he did some cartoons about reconstruction that made fun of some of the new uh, black politicians who were elected uh, during reconstruction uh, and are now deemed racist uh, cartoons. Well, you know, he wouldn't have drawn them in this day and age, I'm pretty sure. But um, there were very few of them. And this is this, what you're seeing in front of you is what the balance of his work was. Um, and so I think when we go back and we look at a person's um, entire career, you have to, you have to have some humility about um, and judgment about what their overall contribution to the history of the craft and of the country. And um, Thomas, Thomas Nast's work on these and uh, on, on uh, the, the Civil War, on slavery, on anti-corruption and uh, democracy um, far outweigh any of the, the, the ones that certain people find um, objectionable. And are, I mean, yeah, I mean, they have reason to object to them and that's fine. That's part of his legacy but you can't throw away the whole man um, mm -hmm. for uh, several cartoons. That's my feeling anyway. So a cartoonist shouldn't be canceled for one of many cartoons and you have to look at the actual time period and the whole man, the whole woman right. in total. That's, that's my feeling. That's, I'm hoping that if they look back on me, they're generous. <laughs> so I have to plead for that. <laughs> can we um? Can we see a couple of your cartoons, your favorite cartoons that you've that you've done? If you have those well, on your desktop too. Uh, I I don't have. Let's see. I don't have a ton. So this is like 2006. It's a little bit old. I, I just happened to have it on this on the on my desktop. Um, uh, development. <laughs> How could little humans possibly change the environment? Um, so this was the more at the beginning of the whole climate change um, uh, discussion. So this is one of many I've done on on development and uh, climate issues. So this is an oldie. It's so old, it wasn't even dated. I started dating them in the 1990s. And you can see my pathetic drawing, <laughs> what I was talking about before. But I love the image, um, you know, that we're just, uh, we're running out of places to throw, our, throw all our stuff away. And here we didn't even have Amazon packages, which is the bane of my, existence now i love the amazon one that you did with uh jeff bezos as god right and and the consumer as adam 
Oh, God, I don't even remember that, that one. That one's up on your <laughs> up on your website. That oh yeah, one's, that one's okay. a great one. You do so many cartoons, you don't even you don't don't remember them. That's crazy. Well, it is true that you know. I mean, when you say okay, Jeff Jeff Bezos and Amazon, <laughs> I've done several on him. I mean, he. I think he's great because he bought the and saved the Washington Post, but um, he did it be, by selling us all this crap <laughs> um this is when bezos announced he was uh stepping down as the head of amazon <laughs> and <laughs> it's like God i mean can step down. yeah so do, but... you, do you think of your captions first or do you think of the image first did the image pop into your head first well, this one was the the this one was him announcing he was going to step down, and I just it, like he runs everything. I was thinking he runs everything. How can he step down? And so this image uh, uh, came to me. But I like the cherubs, everybody with their Amazon bags. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so, I, and I. Uh, just uh, did put a a girl in instead of a man, and she's got her yoga pants on, and so <laughs> I kind of like the whole thing. I love such, that one. We're so lazy. This was this was exactly uh, well, it's about a year ago. It was uh, February 2021, and we were just getting ready to really start Amazon deliveries. Well, Signy, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about cartooning. Um, it's an it's been an interest of mine for a long time, and I'm look forward to uh, getting some more cartoons in the summer and following your work and picking up the book that you did with Professor Zimmerman, um, and just continuing to follow what what you're doing. So, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you're very welcome, but. Could I just show the the Reddit cartoon, the the one that was on Reddit? Yeah, do that one. Okay, I'll just go back and say this is the one that just blew up on on Reddit, um, and I don't even know how old it is because it's not dated. But I it's during the George H. W. Bush presidency, so it was around 1990. Or 1991 somewhere in there and um ever since ever since uh, abortion was uh illegalized um i've been doing abortion cartoons because everybody you know every year every few years there's a big push to undo it and we're in one of those pushes now and so i think that's why it it um people picked it up because it we're still fighting about this um this same uh issue as to who decides uh, what um what a, a woman does with her body so um i guess it still speaks to a generation that wasn't born when this was drawn which is something good to say about a cartoon i think and how do you get the likeness of George W. Bush 
how how many times does it take for you to draw his face and because that's you can easily tell you don't even need a caption or anything to know that that's him holding that umbrella how do you how do you master that uh likeness of his face well i have to tell you george hw bush was a nightmare to draw because he was this patrician wasp with no discernible features he doesn't have a big mop of black hair like ted cruz um he uh, doesn't have any lips you know he has a, a you know a very distinctive jawbone but so do a lot of people from massachusetts and connecticut you know it's um he was uh, he was hard to get used to um the glasses definitely help there yeah well he one of his famous lines that have now probably been forgotten was um read my lips no new taxes was the promise he made and my line was I can't read your lips. You don't have lips. <laughs> Mick Jagger has lips. You don't have lips. <laughs> so I I liked people with um, uh, more facial extravagance than he had, but he was a very handsome man, as was his son, who was also a little difficult to draw. But, um, you know, you just you just keep at it and then you get a uh, an image that you kind of stick with and everybody knows that that's your take on George Bush one or George Bush two. Then you get and, a, then you get a Donald Trump in office and it makes that uh, too easy, too easy for you. Yeah. Donald Trump. We, we cartoonists actually need to thank the man. <laughs> I love the cartoon of Trump with his hair his hairdo and then uh kim jong is like where'd where'd you get yours done He's oh his, yeah that was hair. a good one <laughs> Love well it. you you remember my cartoons better than i do so i'm going to have to hire you to be my memory bank signy <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on today it's been been a lot of fun jake when you're in philadelphia come by i absolutely Ricky. will and bring me your cartoons. I can't wait to see them. Thank you very much. I'm excited to meet you. Okay. It's great having you and, on today. And, uh, and thank, thanks thank so your, much for your time. And thank your attractive assistant who I have not seen. <laughs> <laughs> Cesare. Thank you, Cesare. Yeah, he's doing, thank you, he's doing all the behind the scenes work. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Bye.